you would move in a way that only you can. Lord, I pray that you would speak to us. Lord, you would change hearts. You convict us. Lord, that you would inspire us, challenge us to do things greater for you, to expand your kingdom, to make your name famous. And Lord, right now, I pray that you would be with me. Lord, your, your servant. Lord, I pray you pour into me so I can be poured out. Lord, hide me behind the cross. And I pray right now that, that uh, Lord, you would help me remember all those things you have given me. And I pray these things in your awesome name. Amen, amen. You're going to have a seat. I appreciate, again, y'all being here. And if you want to get your Bibles primed up to where we're going to be, we're going to be in 1 Samuel chapter 4 and 5. 1 Samuel chapter 4 and 5. And since your pastor is not here to brag about himself, I'm going to do the bragging for him. Um, I don't know if he's been telling you this or not, but uh, he's been going to the gym. Has he been talking about going to the gym at all? No? A little bit? Okay, here's what, if, if you want to brag and celebrate your pastor and boost his ego, next time you see Buchanan, talk about how buff he looks. Just like, man, you've been working now, you got some guns, some pythons. So here's what's been going on. Uh, there's been a competition between us at the Coleman campus, and, and, and Buchanan jumped in on this competition. It was to see who could increase their bench press max by the most amount of weight. And so we had two weeks. We, was gonna, we, we maxed out the first day to figure out where everybody was at. And then in two weeks, we was going to max bench press again to see how much we've increased our, our weight. And this joker, he started bench pressing at 225 pounds, which is, that's impressive. The joker bench pressed 250 pounds the other day. He increased his bench by 25 pounds in two weeks. So part of me also thinks there might be steroids. <laughs> so <laughs> he might be trying to do whatever it takes to win. I don't know. He's eating raw eggs in the morning. I don't know what he's doing. Uh, but but he, uh, he did not complete. He tied for first. Let's put it that way. The other guy uh, that, that also uh, he tied with bench 25 pounds extra. Uh, I, I, was, I was not in the running. Uh, I tried. I, I did bench more than him, but that's not what we was trying to do. I, I, I benched, but I, my bench didn't increase that much. And so your pastor is putting in the work. Let me tell you, uh, he, he's getting buff and strong. And uh, anyway, so just brag on him next time you see him. Here's what I want to do this morning. This morning I want to talk about the issue of turning defeat into victory. Defeat into victory. I don't, I don't know how about you, but there's been many times in my life where I felt overwhelmed. There's many times in my life where I felt completely defeated. Many times in my life uh, where things just overwhelmed me. Uh, you might have a stressful job. Listen, if, if, is there any educators, anybody in the education field in, in this room right now? Anybody? Okay, if there was, we don't have a special prayer service at the altar right now. Put some oil on you, because if you're an educator right now, God bless you, all right? Because there's nothing right you can do. There's nothing. Uh, no matter what decision you try to make, you're going to have people yelling at you. Um, so I pity you. I, I, I mean, I, for those who are educators and no educators related to educators, man, pray for them. It is tough right now with this whole situation, the kids coming back to school and trying to figure out what they're going to do. Uh, if you're in the medical field, man, bless you. Because you're in the front lines, and you're putting up with a lot of stuff and a lot of rude people. Man, if you're in the, the service industry, you're put up with rude people. Sometimes jobs can get stressful and overwhelming, and you can feel underappreciated. You can feel underpaid. There's a lot of things that a job can bring to stress you out. Um, maybe your marriage is overwhelming. Uh, I was speaking. Uh, uh, I'm, now, now, Leah, I remember your name, and I'm going probably, is it Rick? Golly, I wasn't even close. Austin, my bad. Son, I was so far off. I was like, I was so confident it started with an R, too. Uh, Austin and Leah, I was talking to them earlier, and they're telling me they were newlyweds. I was like, man, that's awesome. I said, is it everything you thought it was going to be? And Austin, the smartest man on earth, he said, 
everything and more. I said, that's what I'm talking about, man. Uh, but sometimes, let's be honest, marriage can become overwhelming. Marriage can become stressful. Sometimes you don't see eye to eye. Sometimes you, you argue about dumb things like where we're going to go eat. You know, and for 45 minutes, you're just fighting about where you're going to go eat. And she says, I don't care. He says, let's go get Chinese. I don't like Chinese. Okay, well, let's go get Mexican. I don't like Mexican. Well, where do you want to eat? I don't care. You know, and then you're like, <laughs> you know, you're, um, you're going to make me mad. And so parenting can be overwhelming. Can I get an amen there? If you have kids, it can be overwhelming. I have, I have two kids. I have a 10-year-old girl and I have a 7-year-old boy. Now, my girl... She broke her foot recently. She's super clingy because she broke her foot. She stepped in a hole. She's got a knee, a knee scooter. You know what I'm talking about? The scooter you sit on with your knee. And, and she follows you. <laughs> this, this is going to sound so bad. I'm going to have DHR at my house. Um, she follows you everywhere on that scooter. Down, we have a two-story house. And everywhere you go, that scooter's right behind you. And so now we have dubbed the upstairs the Addy Free Zone. And so, because she can't go upstairs. And so, if we ever want a break, we go upstairs, and she just hollers at us from the bottom, I know you're up there. And we're like, leave us alone. But my son, Carter, is, is a handful, man. He is just like me in a lot of ways, similar personality, similar sense of humor, and it's going to get him in trouble eventually. But right now, he's just funny. It's just so funny. And so, the other day, I bribed him. I said, Carter, listen, man, if you're good all day long, if you're good all day, I will give you a quarter when I get home if you're good all day long. By the end of the week, you might have a couple bucks, you know? I mean, that's a pretty good deal, just for being good. I came home, and I went straight to Carter. I didn't go to my wife, Tracy. I went straight to Carter. I said, Carter, I said, let me ask you, buddy. Be straight up with me. Be honest. Were you good? Did you behave? Do you deserve a quarter? And this joker thought about it for a second, and he said, give me a nickel. <laughs> so, so that's the kind of, sometimes parenting can be stressful and overwhelming. It can just be a handful sometimes. But let's just be honest. Even in times when we feel defeated and life is just giving us, giving us more than we can handle and we feel like we're on a losing side, we, we, we're, well, we are real quick to blame things. We blame the enemy. Man, the devil's working hard on me. Whew. We blame other people. Man, them people. If, they, if I wasn't for them, man, things would be a lot easier. Sometimes we even blame God. God, I can't believe you letting this happen to me. But, but sometimes we're, we're quick to blame everybody else but ourselves. Some, sometimes the reason life is coming apart at the seams is because of our own behavior, our own attitude, our own choices. And we're reaping the repercussions of those choices, but we want to blame other people for it. So we're going to get to 1 Samuel chapter 4, and we're going to see a very similar situation. In verse 1 of chapter 4, it says, And the word of Samuel came to all Israel. Now Israel went, against, went out against the Philistines to battle and pitched beside Ebenezer, and the Philistines pitched in Apek. And the Philistines put themselves in array against Israel, and when they joined battle, Israel was smitten before the Philistines. Basically, they were defeated. They were beaten by the Philistines. And they slew of the army in the field about 4,000 men. And when the people were coming to the camp, the elders of Israel said, Wherefore hath the Lord smitten us today before the Philistines? Let us fetch the ark of the covenant of the Lord of Shiloh unto us, that when it cometh among us, it may save us out of the hand of our enemies. So let me just stop right there, because this is point number one. Here, here's what's happening. Israel is going out to war against the Philistines. They, they think they can handle it. They think they can win against this, this army of the Philistines. And so it says they get together and they go to war. But here's something you don't see before the war happening. You never see Israel praying. You never see them fasting. You never see, never, never see them going to the Lord for guidance. You never see them talking to the high priest. 
You see zero preparation. They didn't even glance to God. And so they go to war thinking we're going to win this thing, and they lose. 4,000 of their men are killed in this battle. And, And so what happens? Well, later that night, the elders come together, and they sit around a fire, and they start talking about, man, today was rough. And this is what they said. They said, why did God allow this to happen? Now think about that. They go to war, never once consulted with God, never asked for his approval, his help, his preparation, his power, nothing. They go to war, they lose, and now they're saying, God, why did you let this happen? Here's the thing. They presumed without God. They presumed without God. That's point number one. Here's what happened. They, They became overconfident in their own ability. They thought, you know what, we can do this. By the way, by the way, those little handouts on the papers you see all around, those are for you, okay? If you want to take notes, those are for you. Um, they're not for anybody else, so if you don't have one, you can reach over and grab one. Here's the thing, the Israelite people became overconfident in their own ability because if you look through the history, but look at the chapters before this chapter, they've already won against Jericho. Jericho was a mighty fortress city, man, a big city that was well built, and yet the walls came crashing down and they won. They won against the army of Ai. They've had a couple victories under their belt. They're feeling a little confident. Hey, we got this. It's nothing but the Philistines. We can do this. And because they became overly confident in their own abilities, they became less reliant on God's ability. Here's what happens. The moment you think, I got this, is the moment you don't. And so they go to battle, and they lose. And they became forgetful. Because all those victories they had before this one was all because of God's favor on their life. God's presence in their battle. How many times has God delivered us, rescued us, encouraged us, protected us, answered our prayers, strengthened us in the middle of difficult times, dried our tears, held us during our times of of, of sorrow? How many times has God been there, yet we get to a place in our life we think we can handle it without God, then we fall on our face, and then we say, God, where were you? Where were you, God? And we get bitter, we blame God, and the spiritual leaders, the elders of Israel said, this is God's fault. Here's the thing, ding, 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 ring the bell. You cannot blame God for ruining a party you never invited him to in the first place. And so the people are frustrated, they're angry at God. And and I just want to say, if you're going through life right now, and you're trying to overcome obstacles and break through barriers and see the impossible become possible and you want to see mountains moved and you're trying to do this without the help of God, you're in an uphill battle you will not win. And I think most everyone in here, 99%, I'm not going to throw everybody, 99% of everybody in here has what I like to call a pet sin. A pet sin is something we have a love-hate relationship with, something we battle on a regular basis. It could be grudges and unforgiveness, It could be bitterness, it could be gossip, it could be lying, it could be stealing, it could be lust, it could be a multitude of things, different for every person. But we all have some kind of battle that's personal to us, and here's what happens. We pray, God, please give me some relief from this thing. God, help me. I don't want to be known for this. I don't want to be battling this. I don't want this to be the trademark of my life. God, help me. And so God helps you. He intervenes, and he gives you some, some relief. All of a sudden, you realize, you know, I had a problem with this in a couple weeks. And you start thinking that we, we, can, we got this. I can handle it. Ain't no big deal. And what happens? We fall on our face, back into the same cycle all over again. And we're crying, God, why didn't you help me? I've been praying. Here's the thing. You stepped out of his ability into your own ability, and you, you sank like a rock. So here's what happens. They presume without God. We got this without God. We don't need his help. 
Now, we keep reading. They're changing their mind about some things. Look at what it says in verse 3. And when the people of Israel, and when the people were coming to the camp, the elders of Israel said, Wherefore hath the Lord smitten us today before the Philistines? Why did God let this happen? So this is the plan. Here's the plan. Let us fetch the ark of the covenant of the Lord out of Shiloh unto us, that when it cometh among us, it may save us out of the hand of our enemies. So the people sent to Shiloh, that they might bring from thence the ark of the covenant of the Lord, the, of host, which dwelleth between the cherubims and the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the ark of the covenant of God. And when the ark of the covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all Israel shouted with a great shout, so that the earth rang again. And when the Philistines heard the noise of the shout, they said, What meaneth the noise of this great shout in the camp of the Hebrews? And they understood that the ark of the Lord was coming to the camp. And look at this. It says, And the Philistines were afraid, for they said, God is coming to the camp. And they said, Woe unto us, for there had not been such a thing heretofore. Woe unto us. Who shall deliver us out of the hand of these mighty gods? These are the gods that smote the Egyptians with all the plagues. And See, God was famous. They knew about this God of Israel. They, he, this God of Israel had a reputation. They said, this is the same God that, that brought the plagues to Egypt. Like, whoa. They're saying, woe to us. Woe to us. God is coming to the camp. It says, this is, the, this is the speech. I don't know if you've ever seen the movie Braveheart. You know, when you got, you got the big speech. We're going to go to war. They can take our lives, but they can't take our freedom. And then like, it's that big climactic moment in the movie. Maybe you've never seen that movie. It's fine. It's fine. This is kind of, my, in my vision, the Braveheart moment where they're giving this speech. It says, be strong and quit yourselves like men. He's basically saying, man up. Be strong, man up. He says, O ye Philistines, that you be not the servants unto the Hebrews as they have been to you. Quit yourselves like men and fight. And the Philistines fought. And Israel was smitten. And they, they're beaten. Israel was beaten. And they fled every man into his tent. And there was a great slaughter for their fellow of Israel, 30,000 footmen. So let me just break down what's happening. They lost. One war already. They're back at the campfire. Why did we lose? This is, how did God let this happen? They said, I got an idea. We need the Ark of the Covenant. Go get the Ark of the Covenant. Bring it back. Guaranteed win. Here we go. We have the Ark of the Covenant. Now, now I, w- I want you to see that there is over and over again throughout Scripture, there is God's blessings, but his blessings are always tied into a condition. For instance, he tells Joshua, in the Old Testament, it says, Joshua, don't turn from the left or the right, and you will prosper wherever you go. Here's the condition. Don't turn from the left or the right. Here's the blessing. I will prosper you. To Abraham, he tells Abraham, he says, get thee out of thy country, from thy kindred, and from thy father's house, unto a land I will show thee. And then God says, here's everything I'm going to do for you and all of your ancestors if you follow this condition. He tells Solomon, if you walk in my ways, keep my statutes and commandments, I will be with you and lengthen your days. That's the condition to the blessing. This, this same theme carries over into the New Testament. In John chapter 15, Jesus is speaking. He says, I am the vine, you are the branches. He that abideth in me will bring forth much fruit. So the blessing is you're going to bring forth much fruit. The condition is if you abide in me. There's always a condition and a blessing tied together. Here's the problem with a lot of modern-day Christians is we want the blessings without the condition. God, I'm not going to do what you want me to do, but I still want you to bless me. God, I'm not going to obey you and serve you and love you like you want me to, but I I still want your blessings. I still want your favor. Here's the thing. You you and I, 
All right, this is not just you. This is me too. You and I cannot continually, continually, continually live in rebellion and expect God to bless us. And, 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 and can I just be upfront and honest? Many of us think that we live a surrendered life. God, you can have me, all of me. But if we're not careful and we're really honest, there's still a part of us that we're holding on to. And so we're saying, God, you can have all of this. This right here is mine. That's not surrender. That's not surrender. And so there's a lot of people who hold on to things. They hold on to skeletons in a closet. They hold on to their pet sin. They hold on to some unforgiveness and bitterness. They hold on to something in their life. They say, God, you can have all of this, but this part right here is mine. That's a, here's the thing. That's not, that's not surrender. If you want to be completely and totally used, wholly used by God, you have to let go of all of it. Now, what does that look like? It means holding both hands up and saying, God, I'm yours. Whatever, the skeletons in the closets, the, the, the dark part, parts of my life, Lord, you can have it all. I don't want it. Here's the thing. We try to say we're surrendered by holding on to something that we're not letting go of, and, and God is never going to celebrate sin, wink at sin, or, or, or just pass by sin. God deals with sin. And so if we feel like God is absent from the battles of our life, we feel like we keep having defeat after defeat after defeat, it might be something we need to do is scan our life and say, God, is there any part of me that you don't have? Reveal, reveal that part of my life that you don't own. I want to give it to you. And, and <laughs> so the Israelites, they tried fighting without God. They lost. Now they decide, let's invite God to the battle. And so they say, go get the Ark of the Covenant. Now, I bring toys sometimes. I got some toys up here. All right. I'm going to put these guys. I'm going to put these guys over here for right now. This right here. We'll say this is the Ark of the Covenant. All right. This is a gold box. It's fine. This is going to be our, 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 our uh, imagery for today. This is the Ark of the Covenant. So the Ark of the Covenant in the scriptures, it represented God's presence. It was the place that God dwelt the ark, picture this, like a magnifying glass. How many of you play with a magnifying glass growing up where you got that magnifying glass and you focus the sun just right and you would like burn ants and stuff? Anybody do that? I was the only psychopath. Okay, good. Okay, good. Have one kindred spirit back there. But you can get that magnifying glass and you can focus that light from the sun just right and you can, man, you can start a fire with that stuff. It just intensifies, intensifies the sun on that one spot. Here's what the Ark of the Covenant is. It's that the God of everywhere decided to be somewhere. It was like a magnifying glass for God's presence. The God of everywhere decided to be somewhere, and the Ark of the Covenant represented his presence. And so here's what the Israelites thought. We lost because we didn't have the Ark of the Covenant. Makes sense. Go get the Ark of the Covenant. That's God's presence. And so they go to Shiloh, and they bring the Ark of the Covenant to their fighting spot, and they place the Ark of the Covenant in the camp, and the people go mad. Woo! God is here. God is here. Here's the thing. They were not celebrating the fact that God was present. They were just celebrating the fact that they had the Ark of the Covenant. To them, the Ark of the Covenant was like a God in a box. It was like their lucky rabbit's foot. Hey, we got God now. He's got to do everything we ask him to now. We got God in a box. Let me tell you, God is bigger than a box. God is bigger than a lucky rabbit's foot. And so they think, hey, we got God in the box. We, got, we, got, we, can, we can bend him, we can mold him, we can get him to do everything we want him to do. And before you think, hey, man, that doesn't really happen in real life, let me introduce you to somebody. I call this bendable Jesus. You might be thinking, where do you get something like that? Amazon. <laughs> That's where you get bendable Jesus is Amazon. 
So you got bendable Jesus here. Now, bendable Jesus, sometimes, sometimes in our New Testament church, in our current culture, we like to bend the word to make it fit like what we want to do. We say things like, you know, God doesn't care if I go to church. I can worship him on a bass boat. I can worship him. I can worship him in the middle of the sea. I can worship him in my tree stand. God doesn't really care because God is everywhere. So I can go. And so we just kind of bend them any way we want to, make them fit our narrative, make them fit our lifestyle. We just bend God how we want him to be in our life. And we might say things, you know, it's not that big of a deal if I cross the line with a girl that I'm dating because, hey, we're planning on getting married anyway. So, you know, there's no harm, no foul. I can, you know, Jesus don't care. He loves me. He forgives me. And so we kind of bend them and make them how we want them to be. And, and I know, hey, listen, I know we're supposed to share the gospel. I know it's the Great Commission, but, you know, God didn't wire me that way. He didn't wire me to share the gospel. So I'm just going to let the pastor do it. I'm going to let the youth pastor do it. because. And so we bend Jesus to fit our narrative. We bend him to fit our life. And we say, okay, this is the Jesus I'm going to worship. It's the, the Jesus that, that fits my narrative, fits my lifestyle, fits my convictions. Meanwhile, God is like, I'm bigger than that. You're trying, to me to, you're trying to make me fit something that doesn't work. And so here's what happened. The Israelites say, we need God in a box. So they get God in a box. They go to war. 30,000 of their men killed. Done. On top of that, the Philistines steal the Ark of the Covenant. Now picture this, the Ark of the Covenant was the national symbol of Israel. It was their God. Moses built it. It was their history. And the Philistines take it. And now they have this devastating defeat of 30,000 men killed, and the Ark is destroyed, and the two sons of the high priest, uh, uh, Hophni and Phinehas, killed. Word gets back to Eli, they tell him, Eli, your sons have been killed. Eli, the Ark of the Covenant has been stolen. At that moment, it says that Eli fell backwards in his chair, broke his neck, and died. Eli was the high priest. Word gets to, uh, uh, to Phineas's wife, who was expecting, she was pregnant with a child. Word gets to her, hey, your husband was killed in battle. Your father-in-law just died. She goes into premature labor, gives birth, and in her last breath, basically says, God has left Israel. And then she dies in childbearing. The people of Israel are saying, we lost. We're done. Here's what happened. Here's what happened. They presumed without God. Now they presumed upon God. Hey, you know, if I just get God in a box, everything's going to be okay. It's dangerous to presume about God. It's, it's dangerous to presume upon him that he's going to do exactly what you want him to do. He's going to fit inside your box, fit inside your narrative, fit inside your convictions. God will not let himself be used. I want you to hear that. God is not going to let himself be used and manipulated. We are the creation. He is the creator. He's bigger than many of our ideas, many of our theologies, many of our doctrines, many of our beliefs. He's bigger than that. And so he doesn't fit inside of our box all the time. And here's the problem. Here's the problem with, with thinking that God can fit into a box is that many of us now live our life like a practical atheist. What do I mean by that? We live as if God doesn't exist. We say with our mouth that God exists, but we live as if he doesn't. What does that look like? Well, we run our families without God. We run our businesses without God. We 
play sports without God. We plan our futures without God. We choose our colleges without God. I'm, I'm in student ministry, and so constantly I'm talking to teenagers, and they're dating this one and dating that one. I said, did you pray about it? No, he's cute. I'm like, you got to pray about it still. It don't matter. And so here's the thing. They choose their boyfriends and girlfriends without God, and Lord forbid they choose their spouse without God. And they spend their whole life without God. And then all of a sudden, they go to a doctor's appointment. And the doctor says, hey, listen, we got to run some more tests. It don't look good. It doesn't look good. And you know what the first response is? Go get God. Because isn't that what the Israelites did? We lost. Go get God. We need God. We've been doing this whole thing without God. Now we need God. Here's the thing. Many of us live our life without God. And in the moment of desperation, where do we go get God at? How do we find him? Where, where do we go? Go get God. Go get God. All of a sudden, we get a bad day, we get a bad report, we, get, we have a marriage problem, we have a parenting problem, and we holler, go get God, we need God. And we presume upon God, and then, then we, we presumed about God. See, the Israelites are now saying, we lost. We lost. They've killed 34,000 of our men, they've taken the Ark of the Covenant, Our high priest and the two sons are dead. God has left Israel. We're done. We're done. Every day is not going to be a win, by the way. You'll have temporary defeats. But can I reassure you, God will ultimately win. Hey, I read the end of this thing. I read read the end of it. And and it says that we win. Okay, I'm not going to spoiler alert. Okay, we win. We win at the end of this. And so even though there might be temporary defeats along the way, we ultimately win. And there might be days and weeks that you don't feel like you're winning, but you're going to ultimately win. And there's stories of people who look like they've been in defeat but ultimately win. There's a a book called Crazy Love. It's written by a man named Francis Chan. And and, uh, the book is great. Francis Chan has kind of gone off the rails a little bit sometimes, but the book is great. And in his book, he tells a story by a girl named Brooke Brunkowski. And she wrote a poem. I'm going to read this poem. Matter of fact, if you have a handout, it's in that handout. The poem is called, Since I Have My Life Before Me. This is what she wrote. This was in her journal. I'll live my life to the fullest. I'll be happy. I'll brighten up. I'll be more joyful than I've ever been. I will be kind to others. I will loosen up. I will tell others about Christ. I will go on adventures and change the world. I will be bold and not change who I really am. I will have no troubles, but instead help others with their troubles. You see, I'll be one of those people who live to be history makers at a young age. Oh, I'll have moments, good and bad, but I will wipe away the bad and only remember the good. In fact, that's all I remember, just good moments, nothing in between. Just living my life to the fullest. I'll be one of those people who go somewhere with a mission, an awesome plan, a world-changing plan, and nothing will hold me back. I will set an example for others. I will pray for direction. Wow. 12-year-old girl wrote that. This girl was going to be a change maker, a world changer. I mean, this this was impressive. She, um, during her free time, would babysit, and she would take her babysitting money, and she would buy Bibles with it. This, this is a big deal. You know what I was spending my money on when I was working? It wasn't Bibles. Right? It wasn't Bibles. This girl was taking every little bit of money she would make and buy a Bible. And her mission was to put a Bible in every single one of her peers' hands at schools. She wanted every person in her school to have a Bible. Like, wow. Here's something that tragic happened. At the age of 14, she was riding to the movies with some friends. They weren't doing anything crazy. They weren't drinking. They weren't doing drugs. Everybody was wearing seatbelts. 
but they got into a wreck. And Brooke Bronkowski died in that wreck at 14 years old. And you read that poem, and you see her mission and what she was already doing, and you think, she lost. Game over. That's the end. She's defeated. The plan is done. So they had a memorial service for Brooke. And those, spoke, those who were invited to speak at her memorial service talked of the example she gave to others and her joy that she had for God. And, and during this memorial service, there's 1,500 people at this memorial service for 14-year-old Brooke Bronkowski. And at this memorial service, a pastor got up, gave a brief invitation, and 200 of her classmates received Jesus Christ as their Savior. And guess what Bible they got? <laughs> the one that Brooke had raised money to give them. Now, that is how God can turn a defeat into a victory. When it seems like everything's lost, when, you think, when it seems like everything's done, there's no hope, all of a sudden God can just flip it over on his head, and he can turn what looks like to be the greatest defeat into the greatest victory. In December of 1950, or November of 1956 in Detroit, Elvis Presley was on stage, and he left the concert, left the stage, and an announcement came over the loudspeakers of this building, And it says, ladies and gentlemen, can you finish the rest? Elvis has left the building. Even if you don't know uh, a whole lot of Elvis, you know a lot about that statement. Here's what they were doing. They were sitting there waiting for an encore for 45 minutes, an hour, hour and a half. People were not leaving. They were sitting there waiting for Elvis to come back on stage. He's got to come back. This joker had done, gotten a limo and left a long time ago. And they're still waiting for him to come back out. And so they tell him, ladies and gentlemen, Elvis has left the building. There is no encore. Can I just tell you, one thing I know about the living God that I worship and serve is there's always an encore. That he always comes back. He always has a victory at the end. And so let me just put it out here on Front Street. Are you someone God can trust when things don't go your way? Can he still depend upon your faith when things are not working out the way you want them to? That's a personal question. God, can you trust me when things don't go my way? Can you trust me when things don't work out the way I want them to? So the Israelites are complaining that it, the glory has departed. 1 Samuel chapter 3, verse 22, or 4, chapter 22. It says, the glory has departed from Israel, for the ark of God is taken. They're defeated. We're defeated. We're done. And this was a huge trophy for the Philistines. And so what do the Philistines do? Well, the Philistines take the ark of the covenant, and they worship a god called Dagon. Dagon. And this Dagon is a half-man, half-fish monster thing that they worship. And they take the Ark of the Covenant, and they bring it into their temple where they worship Dagon. Now, i got a Dagon here for us. This this is Dagon. We're going to pretend this is Dagon. There's Dagon. And they place the Ark of the Covenant in front of Dagon. This is symbolic. They're saying, our God defeated their God. Our God is bigger than your God. Our God is more powerful than your God. And so what they're doing is they bring the Ark of the Covenant and set it before Dagon. And in this weird mindset, they believe that whatever power belonged to this God was going to be absorbed into this God. And so what happens is the very next day, chapter 5, verse 1, it says, And the Philistines took the Ark of God, and he brought it, into Eben, uh, brought it from Ebenezer unto Ashdod. When the Philistines took the Ark of God... They brought it into the house of Dagon and set it by Dagon. And when, they, and when they of Ashdod arose early in the morning, early on the morrow, behold, now let, let me just picture, let me set up the scene real quick. So, so they bring Arctic Covenant, put it before Dagon. The next morning, they're ready for church. 
I can imagine the church celebration they're about to have. Here's the Philistines. I can just picture, man, their deacons all dressed up to the nines. Their elders getting ready. I can hear the choir. You're like, oh, happy day. And they're going to church. All right, they're ready to go worship their God, Dagon. Look what happens. It says in verse 3, Behold, Dagon was fallen upon his face to the earth before the ark of the Lord. And they took Dagon and set him in his place again. Now imagine, you're walking in the church, you're like, hey, wait a minute, Dagon fell over. And so they get him and they prop him back up. They set him back up. They didn't tell him, I, I imagine they're asking, like, what happened? You think, earthquake, what happened here? Now, now, verse 4. Same thing, next day, get up early, go into church. And when they arose early in the morrow morning, behold, Dagon was falling upon his face to the ground before the ark of the Lord. And the head of Dagon and both of the palms of his hands were cut off upon the threshold, and only the stump of Dagon was left to him. This is what I think is cool. This is what I think, this, this trophy that the Philistines thought they had has now rendered their God defeated. He has removed the hands and the head of their God statue as if to say, your God can't hold you. Your God can't think for you. Your God is a fake God. Behold the real God. It's as if he's turning everything up on its head. See, I love this. I love this because, because in their mind, this was the real God and this was the fake God. This God was strong and this God was weak. But you know what God does? He flips everything around. Now this God is weak, and this God is strong. Here's what they thought. They thought, hey, our God, our God is exalted. Their God is humiliated. And now, Dagon, or now God comes into Dagon's house, and he humiliates Dagon, and he becomes exalted. And the temple of Dagon now becomes the temple of Jehovah God. This is how God works. Where it looks like it's been defeated, God is at work doing something. Even when you cannot see it. Let me just put it on front street. When you cannot see God working, he's still working. When you don't feel him moving, can I say he's still moving? He's still at work doing things you can't see. Our God is so great. This is what's so good. Our God is so great that he can make a defeat his pathway to a victory. See, God works at different levels at different times. He's over here teaching the Philistines, I am the one true God. No one worships anyone but me. At the same time he's teaching the Philistines this lesson, he's also teaching the Israelites a lesson. He's saying to the Israelites, Israelites, don't you ever try to manipulate me. Don't you ever try to presume upon me. I am Jehovah God. And he allowed himself to look defeated in order to get the greater victory. You love God, you give, you walk, you do everything you think you're supposed to do, but things look bad. God, I've been faithful. My granddaddy was pastoring for many, many years, 40-something years. Matter of fact, I was talking to some people earlier before I ever moved to Coleman, Alabama. I don't know, it's been about 12, 14 years ago, I guess, I preached at Concord Baptist Church right down the road. My granddaddy was pastoring that church. And so years and years ago, I'd already made my way to Fairview. They ever thought I'd actually move up here one day, but I'd, I'd come up here and preach at Concord Baptist Church. My granddaddy was a great man of God, loved God. And he got cancer. Man, it, it devastated us. Got lung cancer. Man didn't even smoke. Got lung cancer. And it spread all over his body. Man ate him up. Got to his brain. He would hallucinate and say things that, that didn't make sense. I idolized this man. He was my spiritual role model. And it broke my heart to see him suffering. And I remember praying to God one day. I said, God, is this really how you treat your faithful servant? Now, I was being real. All right. 
if, if you can't talk to God real, then I don't, I don't know how you talk to him. I, I get real with God. God, you, he's a faithful man of God for so many years, and this is how you treat him? But at the same time where it looked like defeat to me, he was witnessing to every single nurse. He was witnessing to every single doctor. He had nurses come into his room singing Amazing Grace to him at all hours of the night. Man, my, my granddaddy was having church up at that hospital. And so here I am having my little pity party. God, why are you so mean? Why are you so mean to us? I can't. My granddaddy's like, hey, look at, hey, nurse, come in here. Can you sing harmony? <laughs> like he'd get him in there. He'd have a full choir of nurses in his, in his, in his little room, and they're having church. Man, I loved it because what looked like defeat to everybody else, granddaddy's like, this is a victory. Because I'm going home. <laughs> I'm on my way out of here. I'm a pilgrim anyways. I'm just passing through. This place is a tent. I'm going to a mansion. And so in his mind, he was getting the victory. In my mind, I looked like it was defeat. Here's the thing about how God works. Sometimes what looks like defeat is always a victory. I mean, look at Jesus. He goes from healing the sick, stilling the storms, casting out demons, feeding thousands of people from nothing. He brings people back to life, literally back to life. And then he allows himself to become a victim. He allows himself to be captured and then placed into a dungeon. Then he's beaten beyond recognition. But this whole time, God is up to something. See, here's the thing. If Jesus had lived to be 75 years old and then died of natural causes in his sleep, we would have just said, you know what? He was a good man. He was a good teacher. But because he was executed like a criminal on a cross and then buried and then three days came back to life, we can say he wasn't a good teacher, he was a savior. And so what looked like defeat, he made the greatest victory for you and I. He changed everything. We thought, here's the disciples. The disciples are scared and crying and hiding in an upper room somewhere. And then the resurrected Jesus appears in the middle of them and says, man, why are y'all afraid? This had to happen. What, what God, what you thought was going to be defeat, God made victory. And so I, I, I don't want you to think that God can't turn any kind of defeat into a victory in your life. When you feel upset, when you feel overwhelmed, just, say, just, just remind, remind yourself God is up to something. Because in the background, in the background, I'm going I'm to paraphrase what's happening for the rest of chapter 5 and verse 6, or chapter 6. So the Philistines, they, it says they get smote with emrods. Okay, now, now I'm going I'm I'm to get kind of personal here. Verse 6 of chapter 5. But the hand of the Lord was heavy upon them of Ashdod, and he destroyed them and smote them with emerods, even Ashdod and a coast thereof. Now, there's two interpretations of the word emerod here. One definition is hemorrhoids. The other one is plagues. I don't want either one, all right? I'm going to be honest with you. I don't want either one. But something was happening. God, while he was in Ashdod, the people of Ashdod received emerods. Whether that was hemorrhoids or a plague, we don't know, but it... It wasn't fun, all right? And so they're saying, get this thing out of here. And so they sent it to Ekron. And Ekron gets it, and guess what happens at Ekron? Well, the same thing. And so they said, get this thing out of Ekron. So they sent it to Gath. And then Gath gets it, and now they have the Ark of the Covenant, and they start getting emrods. And they said, man, get this thing out of here. And everywhere God was going, he was winning. Here's the Israelites. They're back home. Man, we lost. This is so terrible. God has left Israel. What are we going to do? Meanwhile, God defeats Ashdod, defeats Ekron, defeats Gath. He says everywhere he goes, he's, he's win, 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 win. Everywhere he goes, behind the scenes, God is up to something, doing something, winning all these victories without the help of the Israelites, without any kind of assistance. He's winning. Meanwhile, the Israelites, God is so mean. Why did he do this? And he's just defeating all the enemies of Israel. And finally, it gets to one location, and they said, what do we do with this box? You know what they said? 
Send it back home. (laughs) That's what they said, send it back home. Matter of fact, don't send it empty. They said, put together an offering. And so they put all these things together, these gold offerings, and they send the Ark of the Covenant back to Israel, and this thing arrives, and they're like, whoa, God is back. And meanwhile, the, the, the Philistines are like, please take it. Please, please take it. We don't want no more of your God. Your God is too big for us. Your God is too powerful. Please, the God of Israel is too much. And so they send God. See, this is what I want you to understand. God doesn't need your help to win. He don't need your assistance. He doesn't need your help. God can win without you. Just trust him. Just trust that even when it doesn't look like he's working, he's working. When a situation looks like it's too big, it's not. And when a situation seems too small, it's not. Let me, let me just park on this for a second. Sometimes, I used to, I'd only go to God for the big things in life. I thought he was always the, good, the God of big things, not small things. There was, there was a couple years ago, I bought my truck. Same truck I'm driving today. I bought it from a dealer. And, and, and this truck had a problem with the heater. The heater wouldn't work. And I bought this thing in November. I was cold, all right? I'm a, I'm a fluffy man, but I was cold. And, and I, I was like, man, I got to get this heater fixed. So I brought it back to the dealership. And this dealer was going to fix it. But me- meanwhile, they gave me the keys to this old hoopty Saturn. It was like a four-door SUV wannabe, all right? This thing was terrible. It sounded like a diesel, but only had four cylinders. I mean, this thing was la 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 it was, it was obnoxious and loud. It smelled funny. All right? And this is what they gave me to drive. My kids were embarrassed for me dropping them off at school in this thing. And so... I, I tried to drive it as little as possible. My wife still had her car, so I would drive her car. Well, got, I got the phone call. Mr. Heppenstall, your truck's ready. Just come back and pick it up. Cool, cool. I hadn't drove that Saturn in a week or two, and I realized I don't know where the keys are. <laughs> I've lost the keys to this old piece of junk. What am I going to do? And I remember I looked everywhere. Ever lose something, you start looking places that don't even make sense, like taking off the toilet bowl lid, like not in there. I mean, it's places that it would never be in a million years, but you're just panicking. You're just looking everywhere. You can open the freezer. I don't know. And so I've looked everywhere I thought I could look, and it never turned up. And I remember sitting in my wife's car. I said, Lord, I don't know where my keys are. I need your help. All right, this is simple. I'm thinking I can handle taking some keys. I can, I can handle finding some keys. I paused and said, God, I need your help. I don't know where my keys are. And it was like supernaturally, my hand raised. And, and do y'all have that center console thing in your headliner that holds sunglasses? You like pop it and it kind of folds down. There's sunglasses you can put in there. So it's like supernaturally where I'm praying, God, I just need your help. Bloop. I do that. The thing unfolds and the keys are sitting in the sunglass holder. I'm like, you got to be kidding me. So I'm thinking, thank you, Lord. This is awesome. You're so good. You know, I'm praising him in the small things. I'm like, this is awesome. And I called my wife. I said, you're not going to believe it. I found the keys. She said, really? Where were they? I said, in the sunglass holder in your car. She's like, I put them there so we wouldn't lose them. I'm like, you dog. Like, <laughs> you sabotaged me. But this is what I want to say. If the Philistines at the very beginning would have trusted God in the little things, they wouldn't have had to learn this lesson the hard way. Because they got overconfident. Oh, it's just... It's just the Philistines. I don't, I don't have to worry about the Philistines. That's what the Israelites' mentality was. God, we got this. Take a seat. God never wants to take a back seat to your life. He always wants to be up front. And he had to teach him a lesson. Don't ever presume without me, about me, or upon me. I'm God, and I don't fit in your box. Let's pray. Father, this morning, Lord, we thank you so much for being a God that's bigger than our box for being a God that's always up to something even when we don't see it. 